Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back for another episode. We have the Academy Award-winning costume designer, Deborah Scott here. How's it going? Great. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You are our first episode of 2023. Super exciting because we are diversifying the Finding the Frame platform to bring on other disciplines, costume design, which is an integral piece of the puzzle. And it's super exciting to get your insight into it. How were your holidays? They were great. How about yourself? Amazing. Good. And uh, let's talk about a little bit with your career and how you got started, was doing some research. I saw that you went to the University of California, Northridge. Mm -hmm. But even before that, were you always interested in being in costume design or just being a filmmaker? I think I was mostly interested in film, in the film world. You know, Mm -hmm. I loved uh, movies of all sorts. And when I was in school, I was in the theater department because that was, at the time, the best place to get an education about costume design or costuming and all the things that go with it, makeup, hair, studied set build, you know, all that that kind of thing. Um, You know, I think heading off to college, I was quite young. I went to college really early. And I think that you know, you kind of go, oh, I think I'll be an actress. I have no idea what I'm doing. But then clearly that was not going to be my forte. And I really, really enjoyed not only being behind the camera. I love the theater. I love being backstage. I love creating costumes. I loved actor- helping actors create their characters. And so for a while I did a lot of regional theater. I did Shakespeare festivals all over the West. And then um, at some point I was like, you know, I really got to follow my, my love. I felt the passion to be in the movie business. So I kind of changed course and luckily I had the opportunity to do so. Did you grow up in California and were you in a filmmaking family or were you the first to join the industry? I'm the first. I'm the first. Now my dad was in uh, building products and we moved all around the states when I was young. Like every two years we were moving. So it, but he was a huge lover of the movies. Mm -hmm. So he got me very, very excited about it. Just, you know, going to the movies, seeing that big giant screen and 
you know, getting involved in the stories. And he was a huge, of course, fan of Westerns. So that got me really interested in, oh, that's that's a period movie. That's what you call that. And uh, so, yeah, and when I headed off to college, they thought, oh, my God, you better learn how to type because uh-huh. you could be a secretary or something that you could actually make money at. And I was like, mm-mm, never going to learn to type. Absolutely never going to learn that. And <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the moment where I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I just like shut that door completely, which I think is a really important thing to do as a student, is to really like set your sights and focus on it really hard. So it looks like you got introduced to cinema, at least not knowing that it could be the job that it was going to become today. But at a young age, very similar to me, my father would take me to the cinemas every weekend. And there's just something extremely captivating about watching a movie on the big screen. Even today, it is always my like safe space. And I always tell everyone, regardless of where my career goes, there will nothing, nothing will replace the feeling of going to a cinema and just uh, watching a movie. Yeah, it's so great, right? The lights mm-hmm. go down, it gets dark, and you can't, you're, you know, you can just sit there for the hour and a half to two hours to three hours now, but you can enjoy yourself and tune everything out. It's wonderful. That's awesome. So when you got into university, it looked like you started to figure out, okay, I want to be a costume designer. What really spoke to you when it came to that role? I think it was the, the helping to create the character. And I had a lot of friends that were actors at school and it would always seem natural that it would, the costume. I mean, I, I, I tell the story when I was in fifth grade that we did a production of The Addams Family and I got to be Morticia because I was the thinnest girl in the class and had the longest hair. That, was, that seemed to be the prerequisites there, but I also decided that I would make my own costume. So that was, it was like, oh, this is very interesting. And I think that's where, that's where it, it really took hold. Um, I ended up graduating from Cal State Long Beach. I started at Northridge, and I think it was a, it was a very good transition for me. And I think it's again important for students to find the school that they really feel is going to 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 give them the spark that they need and the place to explore. That's awesome. And what is the training for or the education I should say for a costume designer look like? What are some of the like fundamental aspects that you have to learn early on to get to a place like where you are today? Well, that's a very good question. Um, You actually don't have to have any, there's no prerequisites. Mm -hmm. The the truth is, is that you really learn by doing it. However, having said that, I am a huge believer that there are skills involved. And I think that's where my theater training really came into play, because we learned everything, all the disciplines, how to cut a pattern, how to drape a pattern, how to, you know, all the history of costuming. So you you start to understand the scope of what being a costume designer is. Um, You just, you learn other things, you learn makeup, hair, you know, so that you have a complete idea of what a character is and you have a chance to practice. Every school play, every, you know, college puts on a lot of plays. There's big theater, little theater, and, and we, at the time, we did a lot of experimental theater, which was really fun, where you can use your imagination and sort of craft a new world. But um, I think those skills are extremely important. Some people come at it from a fashion standpoint. They mm-hmm. go to fashion school. I think that's great. I think you learn a lot of skills there. What you seem to lack there is the, the, the building of the character part. It's not, we're not trying to set fashion trends normally as a costume designer. So, but I think if you jump in and you learn that, that's good too. Um, 
I think it's really important to have a really hands-on approach. I really do. Did you find that maybe, you know, because it was really interesting, I was going to mention fashion, but your point too, that in the fashion world, it's not so much about representing a certain character on screen. You, it's more about the articles of clothes that you're trying to put off. Maybe there's an aesthetic or design that mm -hmm. you really want to showcase. But for you, did you see yourself when you were being involved in these plays, really reading the scripts, getting involved Absolutely. in what was what the character arcs were, and how did that play out early on in your in your career? I think the the, the building of those characters, the script is really the, the the touch point of the whole thing, whether it's a movie or a stage piece. That is where you establish all of your character relationships, boundaries, goals, anything that's in there, and also the things that aren't in there. You know, you start to learn how to do that character arc from beginning to middle to end. If someone, you know, broad strokes, like you're a good guy, you seem like a good guy, but you're really a bad guy, whatever it is, it's like it's all there on the page. Then the director becomes incredibly important, and the director is the focus of a, of a theater piece, as in a, in a movie. Mm -hmm. Directors are incredibly important. So you start to say, okay, how, how do we work together? How do we understand the language of each other? And what is it that we're trying to say together and individually? And then, you know, the people who are building the sets, what's the sets like? What time period are you going to set your piece in? And, and the actors sort of follow that. So, and a lot of times you start, you have an actor already in place, but many, many times you don't. And I assume it's no different, you know, early in, you know, when you're in, when you're in university, then you graduate and you're going into the, to the uh, workforce. A lot of those collaborations early on, that's important, right? Meeting directors, working with other teams. What were the first steps outside of university to get started in your career? Well, exactly what you said. You make relationships with people. A lot of the people that I knew in college went on to do professional. You know, a lot of them went into the theater world. When I departed into movies, I had had, you know, you one, you got to have that lucky break. You got to have that key that opens the door to you. And I went to school with Charlie Martin Smith, an actor who was pretty famous for the Buddy Holly movie at the time. And he was doing a movie in Alaska called Never Cry Wolf with Carol Ballard, who had done Black Stallion. And they call, he called me one day and said, you know, we need a costume designer. Are you are you interested? And I'm like, absolutely. So I jumped on a plane and, and went to Alaska, and it was the beginning of everything. So when you're given a script, let's maybe use E.T., for example. You read through the script. What is your process on a collaborative level? Or maybe just starting with yourself, what are you looking for to build a character? Are you just reading the script alone, alone or are you turning to Spielberg asking, you know, how do you see the characters playing? What does that look like? It looks, it's a lot of reading by yourself. And that is a really good example of an amazing screenplay if you ever, if anyone ever gets their hands on it, because Melissa could write with very few words. I also did it in, in the cupboard with her. She's, you know, she did an amazing movie called Kunden that had basically no dialogue, you know. So she's really perceptive at a few words in the script, descriptive words that are really apt and pointed. So you could see that whole world in that script. And then it was when I met with Steven, I don't remember exactly how we, how we first went about it. He's, he's pretty no-nonsense, you know? It's like, well, how'd you like the script? I loved it. What do you love about it? Let's talk about the characters. You sort of get on with it. And then I think with the production designer, Jim Bissell at the time, that we, 
decided under Stephen's guidance that how we were going to present that world. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very much sort of a, I think Stephen likes to call it his suburban film, right? He loves the suburbs. He loves the places that he grew up, I grew up there. Many of us American kids grew up like that. And it's to, to not to glorify it, but to, to make it inviting and beautiful so that you're invited into it. That you're, you know, there's so many movies that you see really bad versions of the suburbs, which is great too. But this was more of a slightly glorified and classic look at it. So mm-hmm. we tried with the design, I think overall that there was a, um, a Norman Rockwell kind of feeling where they, you know, that the beautiful light, that perfect kind of quietness that you can get with those paintings. And the characters are, they're not meant to be showy. They're meant to be very real. They're meant to have um, nothing, it's nothing that takes you out of the genre. So that's one of the reasons I think the movies lasted and that it wasn't repeated, it wasn't, there was no sequel, all those things that keep it a classic. And there's nothing in there that you would go, I don't understand that that's not today. It could be today, right? There's nothing in there that takes you out of the movie-going experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you're building out these characters, how do you, like, plan each one? Do you end up just, like, having people sketch out looks? What does it look like to just the process of building one character in a movie? Well, it depends on the movie, Mm -hmm. you know? E.T. was quite different. It was a small crew. I pretty much chopped it, made some things, made some things by myself, and then just got... I, uh, what I like to do when I shop on a movie is to sort of get my play, my head into where that character would go, what they would choose. So you sort of channel it a little bit. But there's other huge movies I've done where you work with illustrators, designers on their own right. Um, depending on some minor- minority report, I had three different illustrators specifically to illustrate different styles because the movie had kind of different levels of society. Mm-hmm. So it, you just sort of like, okay, what's this going to require out of me? What do I need to do visually before I actually start shooting the movie to show the actors, the director most importantly, what my plan is? So you could have a rack of clothes and say, this is my plan. You could have a collage. You could have an art. There's many. This is also something I teach students is that there's many ways to get your ideas across. You don't have to be mm-hmm. a brilliant illustrator yourself. You just have to communicate what they those characters are going to look like. Do you have a film that you felt was particularly one of the harder to craft a look for? Hmm. No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think they they all every movie presents its challenge. Mm-hmm. Every single movie, no matter even if you've done if you do the fifties and you do the fifties again, still you're you're taking a different time and place for these people in the story. Right. And during this time, I know we spoke to, we spoke about how you have an agent now. When did you start having to consider having an agent as a costume designer? And you were saying around the time when you started to have an agent really wasn't a thing. When did that come to prevalence? Yeah, it seemed like early on, and I really like, uh, I have to compliment you on having a dialogue with a costume designer in, in a film academy like this, because I do think we deserve a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. We're really important to the visual narrative of the film. And without us, you couldn't, you wouldn't have actors in clothing. I mean, everyone wears clothes. So 
you could leave it up to everybody, yeah. or you could have someone who's actually got the focus and the attention and the, the narrative in their head. So kudos to you for, for sure. reaching out. <laughs> um, um, I think that when, it was at the time, it was I think I first talked to the agents when I was doing Twilight Zone, and I thought, you know, how do you get work? You know, beyond working with a certain production company or, you know, there's so many, there are amazing directors out there, right? There are amazing projects being done all around you. And so I thought very hard about it, and I thought, I think, you know, I think maybe trying to get an agent would be a really good thing. And it was harder than I thought because at the time, like you said, it wasn't a common thing for costume designers to have agents. Agents weren't taking on costume designers. We were considered more below the line than I think we are. So, I mean, we are below the line, but blow below the line. So I, first I met with uh, Phil Gersh at the Gersh Agency, and he was an amazing person. He's since passed away quite some time ago, but he was incredibly impressive to me. And I think he had been Humphrey Bogart's agent, which he never let me forget, and I will never forget it because it was an amazing thing to hear him tell stories of yeah. Bogey and Lauren at home and, you know, amazing things like that. But he, I think he, um, he was willing to take a chance. You know, for whatever reason, he saw something. And I think he was very understanding of the fact that the film business was going to grow, that we were going to become more important, and why not not only promote that, but get a piece of that. So I was with the Gersh Agency for, Gersh Agency for a long time, and then I'm now I'm with an innovative artist with Heather Griffith is my agent. And they're all people that understand you. They're mm-hmm. good listeners, right? Because they want to know what you want and how you go about your job. Right. So that's, once they get that, they can promote you to other people. And now I think it's really common. I mean, you know, you just, if you're, if you're getting started and you have even a small list of credits, sometimes you have to build them up a little bit. It could be non-union work. It could be all, all kinds of things, but you just reach out until someone says yes to you. And do you have any tips? Obviously, your experience is going to be a little bit different from those today that might be trying to get an agent. Do you have any tips for those today trying to like be with Gersh or innovative artists, what they might be looking for? Is it a matter of, and I don't know if costume designers put together reels to showcase their skills like a DP would, but is there any advice that you could give on that end? Yeah, you know, I think that's not uncommon for people to put together, certainly a portfolio of some kind. Um, and a reel is probably a great idea. I'm not sort of in the loop of that anymore because yeah. I don't have to. When I even when I go in for a job, well, that's a whole other thing. We can talk about that because that's an interesting thing too. Yeah. But the the process of getting the agent, you need to prove to them now that there's so many. Right? There's a lot of costume designers out there. A lot of talented people working in the industry. Television, streaming. There's so much content. There's so much need for it. So somebody might have a full roster and feel like, well, I already have X amount of people. I don't know if I can, I have the bandwidth to take on another person, if I can do them justice. So you should also think like you're shopping them, right? You're Mm -hmm. looking for someone who can hear you and represent you, not just to add to their numbers. Um, So it's a, it's a kind of a give and take, but I think you you need to go in there with a professional attitude and portfolio of some kind. Is there an expectation you should have from an agent as well? Obviously, a lot of the work you're getting is because of your name, the colleagues that you have, and you shouldn't expect that the agent's always going to be able to get you work, right? You kind of have to work yourself to be able to get those jobs, job after job after job. Mm -hmm. But is there any additional expectations or things that you should consider when looking for an agent? 
I think you should look for someone who you think is working in the genre or the league that you might want to be in. You might want to work in television specifically. You might want to work in premium cable, cable specifically. So maybe you look down their roster, mm-hmm. right, and you say, okay, what are these people doing? Do I know some of the names? Are they, you know, are you in their league so that you can get that foot in the door that's really solid? Absolutely. Well, now I'd love to jump forward a bit. Obviously, Avatar 2 or Avatar The Way of Water just came out last year, late last year in December. This is one of the biggest movies yet. Obviously, it's James Cameron James Cameron coming with another just like magnum opus of his. I would love to talk about your collaborative process. And maybe it even makes sense as to go back to 2009 when Avatar, the first part, came out. When were you first approached for that film and what did it look like? Well, I first worked with Jim on Titanic, so he knew my work. Uh We knew each other. His producer, John Lando, and I knew each other. I met John way before I met Jim on Hoffa, so we had some professional relationship. I think on the first Avatar, it was very interesting because um, another costume designer started the movie and then left the project, and at that point, because it's a CG movie, which it clearly has beyond the boundaries of that now. Um, I think there was an expectation that maybe you didn't need a costume designer. Maybe mm-hmm. the CG artists could do it. So while they were sort of involved in live action, they kind of let it go a little bit. That one day I got a call from John Lando, and he always says, he woke me up, and he did. It was quite early in the morning. And I was like, and we, like I said, we've been friends for quite some time. And I'm like, hello. And he's like, Deb, what you up to? I'm like, uh, you know, I haven't even had a cup of coffee yet. What do you need, John? And he said, um, how would you like to come over? And he lived not too far from me. Mm-hmm. How would you like to come over and look at some of the stuff we've been up to down in New Zealand? Because at that point they were, they had already gone to New Zealand. And I'm like, absolutely. When? He goes, well, how about now? And I'm like, well, uh, so I jumped out of bed, got dressed really quick, ran over, acted like, of course I'd been up for hours. And he showed me this amazing footage. And it was absolutely spectacular. And beyond anything I'd ever seen before, I didn't know, I, I didn't even understand what I was looking at, really, except it was beautiful. And he goes, so uh, Jim was saying, you know, we have a, we have a little, an issue we want to, you know, we thought you'd want to come and help us on this one costume for Sigourney. And I'm like, sure. And he goes, we're leaving tonight. And I was like... For New Zealand? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, here's the other tip to anybody in the film business. Have your passport up to date. It's Mm -hmm. really important because it might come up. So we jumped on a plane that night, and I hadn't seen Jim since, you know, the probably the Oscars for Titanic. Um, And it was just like old home week in the old uh, lounge of Air New Zealand. And we got on the plane. I went down there. I'm like, hold up a minute. What am I what am I doing? What do you, what do you need from me? And so we sort of discovered uh, through a long process and I ended up like, you only had to be here a couple weeks, one costume. That's it. I was on the movie for a year and a half after that. And a lot of that was following through the post-production where I think Jim and John and myself included realized that these costumes that were being rendered through a computer process absolutely needed to be made. Mm -hmm. That, the 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 endless bounds of the artists couldn't quite capture a real garment the way he wanted it to be. Yeah. So we, I made a lot of things. We kind of backtracked a little bit. It posted in, in a 
movie like that, you have a long time to sort of get things right. And so we did that. And then um, what was the question? Yeah, (laughs) well, I mean, just kind of pick up what you were saying is even on the new one, and correct me if I'm wrong, I saw that you 3D printed or maybe not 3D printed, but created a lot of this stuff for uh, what is the water tribe for the Navi called? Metkaina. Yeah, you created a lot of that and then it would be brought into the film. So I guess maybe let's use Titanic in Avatar, the difference between shooting a live action film, which Avatar is still, but rather than having everything built and being put into the, like, the CG post-process. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? It's a very complicated, it's far more complicated than anything I'm ever, I've ever done, even the first Avatar. The Avatar Way of Water is a much bigger film. It's got way more characters. They have way more costume changes. The whole visual is just exploded. I'm sure many of your viewers have seen the movie already and sort of understand what I'm talking about. The addition of different clans, the the world building that um, we did with Jim. And it's the process is, in terms of design, is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Read the script, understand the characters, work with the director, work with the production designer, whatever it is get the ideas going in your head, put them down on paper. I worked with a lot of a lot of illustrators, a lot of designers on this project who were very apt at working with a computer because that's sort of the pipeline, right? But Jim and I actually are really old school together and we I printed like crazy so that we could look at here's here's a bunch of designs possibly for an Atiri. What you know, mix and match, mm-hmm. you can see them all together in a computer it's really hard. It's not hands-on. So, and then it started with the process of, you had a lot, I had a lot of things in front of me. Performance capture, which was completely new to me. Performance capture underwater, which had never been done before. And that, I was expected to help make those suits to accomplish them being able to film underwater. So I was doing that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was a whole, that was a whole deal. And no one had ever done it, right? So it was all new. And the first day, the, the technicians that are, developing all, you know, they're all the little markers, and I'm sure people are familiar with what performance capture on a, a dry set looks like. It's the same thing, but you have to make it in an underwater suit. So that presents a bunch of problems. So the first day that I, <laughs> sidebar, well, the first day I did that, um, the technicians walk in and they sort of plop these pile, it looked like Christmas lights, you know, when you take your Christmas lights out of storage and mm-hmm. like, oh my it's God, just it's just a mess. blah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm like, and and you need what? You know, it's like, we got to figure out how to put these on this person underwater. That became, it took about, I bet, I think probably seven months to get to a very viable suit that now you see in a lot of the stills of the movie that are sleek and silver and you can move. And the first ones were, I mean, they look like Michelin men. They could barely move their arms and legs absolutely was never going to work because you need that articulation of the body. We even had sensors on toes because and because they're they're barefooted. So they the articulation that the camera can pick up on just toes wiggling in the water is amazing. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one thing. I also had preparing for live action. All the live action costumes that we built every single one of them, all the props, all the masks, all the breathing masks, all the helmets, all that. So By that time, most of my team was working from Weta Workshop in New Zealand, which is an incredible, just an incredible artist collective is the the best thing I can say about it. And I was lucky enough to be asked to enter their premises and work there with them for 
I've been there off and on for five years now. So it's pretty rare for them. They, they live, you know, everyone thinks New Zealand's so far away, but it's really not. But they, they worked generally with getting kind of contracts from overseas and then delivering back, never mm-hmm. see, sometimes never seeing the designer. I'd worked there briefly on my Spider-Man, so, and I'd worked there on the first Avatar briefly. So I sort of I knew what to expect, and I was really, again, the amount of people there that can make pretty much anything you wanted. Um, and we started this whole process of understanding the designs, understanding the language of the people that we were creating, understanding the characters, the family, the clan, the world. And we went through this, you know, started producing costumes like crazy because we knew we were going to need them. We also did extensive testing so that any kind of costume, if Jim is a madman for proof of concept, I mean, it's like, is that going to work underwater? Yes. Is it? I'll show you. So (laughs) it becomes a very much a hands-on situation. A lot of work in uh, pools all over Mm-hmm. the country and we also did you know wind tests you know like that'll never stay in her hair yes it will let's test it let's turn that ritter fan up so high that your skin's basic basically blowing off but you know so he likes to make sure that everything works even though it's going to be put into additional space 100%. he wants to know that in a practical like use scenario it will be what we represent on screen absolutely and That's i impressive. think it's impressive and i think it speaks to his uh his authority in what's real mm-hmm. absolutely and then he can say you can't fault anything in the movie because it could be that way it happened that way we proved that everything is real the real people the nine foot tall blue people everything and anything and especially with the with the costumes we were probably the only department in my department sort of reached out reached out into props we did all the hand props we did like i said the breathing mask for live action we did all the hand props for the navi i did all the hair i did a lot of the body art almost all the body art and things like that so you know given that absolute amazing opportunity to create these characters from head to toe but also with the sense that they were going to be real. And I think that's why when you see the movie, along with all the work of the digital artists, it looks so real. Mm -hmm. And where did you pull the inspiration for Avatar? Did that start before you being brought on for the original one, or did you get to have some pull going into the second one specifically? This is the inspiration at least for uh, the water Navi. Yeah, we having the first movie there was a template for mm-hmm. how the Omatakai and clan lived, you know, what their basic kind of costume rules were, um, the rules of their society. And, and so that was a good start. And then branching into the second clan, extremely important to me and to Jim that they were now, they are different peoples. Right? We didn't know at the time, it was still being developed how they would look physically different. All that adaptation to the water that they have the fins and, the eye membrane and all that that's very incredibly scientifically thought out from his point of view. Again, proof of concept, proof of concept all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> don't ever try to fake it because you'll be caught and you'll be asked and you'll have to prove it. So we did. And that was actually a really fun part of it because it wasn't just, oh, let's make something pretty. Let's make something pretty that also functions in the way mm-hmm. it needs to. So he would have me do tests with uh, – and, and it informed the design – you know, back and forth, because I would do tests with 
different kinds of fabrics or materials or different plant things underwater, look at how they flow. Did they flow right? Were they neutrally buoyant? Were they too buoyant? Did they weigh things? How many beads weighs it down too much? They, you know, Jim's a lover of motion and costume. I always say that, and I am too. It gives the costume life. So when you see the character swimming, and even when you see them on dry land, things moving a little bit in the air, in the wind, you know, the waves, it's, it, it gives a reality base to what is really true. And the simulators and the animators, having never worked with these kind of garments, they, because they were one-of-a-kind, bespoke, unique pieces, um, that they had to understand what that was, too. So we had an enormous task. But back to your question, which was we, when I came on the, the second one, there was the idea of this water clan. We knew a lot of rules about Pandora. It was warm. Um, I personally researched all around the world, island peoples, you know, because you want to get like, okay, what do, what do you learn from research? You learn a lot of things. You learn how people live, what their priorities might be as a culture, what makes culture, that sounds like a vague term, but it's really true, um, that, that people who are indigenous peoples are very hand crafty. They're mm-hmm. very talented with their hands because they have to be, they had to be all through history, um, that they use their environment to create their clothing. And they're quite often very decorative. And this is true all over the world. He knew that he was going to settle down in this sort of greater Polynesian area that he's talked about many times. And do you turn to like photographs or any art books specifically when you're trying to craft this stuff? Or is it just like general research that you do on the internet? How do you get a lot of the information that you use to transfer into your films? Well, anyway, mm-hmm. anyway, the library, even going back to the library, going back, you know, going back to any any movie you might have seen that you said, like, you know, that'd be really interesting. How did they do that in Tarzan? You know. Anything that can inform you in any way so that you can get to your design premise. Mm -hmm. Um, We are lucky that we have the internet now. It can be evil because sometimes it's incorrect. So it's just like, it's like being a lawyer. You got to double check your facts. Yeah. So you have to do that. But we're very lucky in a time period when in in the past, you know, I would be doing much more library research. We bought a tremendous amount of books from incredibly beautiful books of peoples all over the world, artists, people, you know, just craft books. It was an incredible learning experience because I did not know anything about carving, sculpting, particularly. I never done those things. I hadn't, I didn't really know about macrame. I mean, everybody macrame at some point, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the same as people who are really going to do that for you. Yeah. Right. So then we, I was really lucky to assemble an incredible group of people who just we learned the language of the movie and what we wanted to do with it almost as we went along. And what did the process, you know, everyone knows Cameron as being this really um, he knows exactly what he wants. Was he there every step of the way with you as the costume designer approving it? Or did you get to have a lot of leeway? In addition, working with like Russell Carpenter, what was it like working with the cinematography department and just making sure that it all like meshed together? Yeah, the hardest thing on a film of this size and scale is meshing together. Yeah. Because everyone's off doing, you know, oh my God, I got a ground break on this, how to light a virtual whatever. I got a, you know, everyone's so busy. Everyone's department is so enormous, and 
mine being really the only one that actually made full things that actors could wear. The sets were sometimes a little partial, but they're all those crazy set builds for performance capture. Then in New Zealand, we had the live action sets. But what we were doing was like its only unique little space. So Jim would often, yes, of course, you have a lot of approvals. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's practical, like we talked about all this testing, and sometimes it's just aesthetic. Uh, we had many meetings about hairstyles, for example. Like, what kind of, what, here's what I had to offer you, Jim. I'm thinking this character could be X, Y, or Z. Um, when I started on the project, the initial drawings for Sigourney as her character of Kiri, she had very long braids. She looked like a lot like Neytiri. Well, I changed that, so through a process, we got into this kind of feathery, short haircut that much better represented her character, I think, and Jim thought, and Sigourney thought, so that worked out really well, but um, there's all those approvals, and then there's great lengths of time where Jim would be incredibly busy with something else, and you had to just go forward, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're not necessarily, no one holds your hands, you know, your hand on big projects like this. You have to be confident to go forward, and if you make a mistake, you back up and you start over. And that's also the the beauty of these kinds of films, that there is a tremendous long post-production, which, again, as a costume designer, getting a seat at that table was incredibly important, so that my designs, my costumes, all the information that I could feed to the um, VFX house, they had to show back to me. Right? Mm-hmm. We had to have then a dialogue, which is probably new for them, to have it on a daily basis, too, where I was doing all the fittings with them virtually, transferring a human-made costume to a tall person, and and getting all of the, the look, the feel, the movement of the costumes correct with them. So that was that was an incredible part of the process. And how do they how do they actually transfer transfer the costume into the digital space? Do you know how, like what that process looks like? Well, they, they, from my point of view, from what we do, the first thing they do is they take in all the information, right? They take in the 2D art, which is usually front, back, side. They take in a, a template that's sort of a proportional look. Even though we didn't know when we were making the initial drawings what the, what the characters were going to look like physically, you know, the teenagers, the children, how big were they going to be? So it was a little bit back and forth on that, and it took a long time to get to the very end of it. But then we they scan all the costumes. All the samples get scanned in their magic technological computer, and then they turn their, their artists loose on it, right? And they do 3D turntables. We do – sometimes it's not 3D roundy-round. Sometimes it's just, you know, full front and your back – and, you know, I'd have to advise them. Sometimes it would be like, okay, I know that looks on my drawing. That's why the drawings become really important, too, for proportion. Mm-hmm. Because the costume garment could be, if you put it on a six-foot-tall man or a three-foot-tall, you know, toddler, it's the, the, it fits completely different. Mm-hmm. So the fit, very tailored to the bodies of the digital characters. Right. And where do you see the future of costume design going? Do you see there being a lot more films like this taking on this process and being made in CG? Or would you say that the traditional process of live action films are going to continue being that? It's going to be two different model types. What do you see the future being? I, I see it being multi-model types, multi-model types. I mean, 
making these kinds of movies, there's no doubt that they uh, a film like an Avatar Way of Water costs an enormous amount of money. Um, it takes a tremendously large crew. Mm-hmm. It takes a crew of really disparate and different talents um, to have to pull it together. Uh, you know, that costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time, and time is money in the film business. Yeah. I also see, you know, all this incredible content that can come on your computer or your television, um, sometimes quite big, kind of amazing, right? The Lord of the Wing, all these amazing television things that they're doing that are big scale now, but made for a smaller screen. Mm-hmm. So all these things you would need to take into account, but also the the intimate small movies with two or three people, and especially through COVID, you look, you're, I've seen so many movies recently where the cast is quite small. There's barely any background. So I think it's going to be all of it, and yeah. I think it's going to depend on the geniuses of the writers, the directors, the filmmakers, where they want to go. It's an open book. It's mm-hmm. really an amazing opportunity, and I believe all of these venues, and I think we definitely proved it with Avatar The Way of Water, that the costume designer is essential. Absolutely. And I don't know if you had any hand in the making of like the new Avatar video game that's coming up, obviously, because it's your costumes being put into that. Have you spent a lot of time in the gaming world? And I'm assuming it's not too much different than what you're already doing with Avatar, right? Yeah, I mean, we didn't, uh, the costumes that they would use from the movie are one thing, but they have the, 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 the gaming world was a whole new thing for me. Mm-hmm. It was such, it's been so much fun to get to go into that because it's something I'm I don't I don't play video games I'm on the way other side of that but that so I started off like guys you know all these incredible experts and they had a tremendous amount of artists doing designs and going through approval processes and things like that but I'd be like guys I don't understand a game so we just tell me what the game's for how are we playing it are we playing it on your phone are we playing it on your computer are we playing it on your big giant tv is it 3d so to learn again learn about what your venue is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was mostly them asking, being so kind to ask my opinion of things. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, I had a position where I could be like, I don't, you can, eventually they're going to do whatever the powers that be tell them. Mm-hmm. But it was wonderful. And I still, in fact, I have a games call tomorrow that to, t- to try to help, there's so many, there's so many kinds. And I'd be like, wait, I don't understand. It's this costume so detailed, and it's going to be on your phone only? This is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a whole new, I mean, oh, my gosh. I mean, I think there's a million jobs there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the trailer for the new Avatar video game looks crazy. Yeah. It looks so good. I'm a big gamer. I'm always fascinated go. with, the, like, the way that the film industry and the gaming industry are converging right now, and Avatar is an amazing, Avatar is an amazing example of how those tools are being united mm-hmm. to create a whole new medium. And uh, That's I, wonderful. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. guess, like, would you ever want to do more video games? Are you happy staying in the live action realm? Where do you see yourself going from here? I think I'm going to stay. I mean, I always entertain anything because mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's a wonderful, anything can be a wonderful opportunity. I think I'm going to stay really in, in the film business. Yeah. I think I'm going to stay with mostly live action. I mean, now that I have an expertise in another subject, I'd like to share some of that knowledge with other students and, right. and other costume designers who making it easier for them to understand what you're going to have to do before you have to do it. Um, 
And, you know, we learn, you learn so much through experience, and I've had a lot of experience in that venue now, yeah. so. And I've noticed that you've done predominantly features. Have you ever done any TV? I've done a very little bit of TV. What is the difference like for a costume designer working in those two separate mediums? Well, I think understanding your screen size, mm -hmm. right, is really important what you can and can't get away with on you know if you're talking 3d imax like oh my gosh you see everything blown up to gigantic so every pore on your face is going to show um on so that i think and i think the budgets are somewhat commensurate i do know that there's television like we said being done out there with huge budgets which is amazing and wonderful so hopefully producers and directors and studios and streaming services and the Apples and the Netflixes will understand what it takes to do what they've cut out for themselves mm -hmm. um, and to understand what it takes to get there in terms of costume department specifically. Yeah. Because typically, typically we're a very small part of the budget. And I think that visually we're an incredibly large part of the budget right? Like your visual eyes are taking in this incredible characters. Yeah, you're that looking are, at characters that's what you're looking most at. of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to sort of reconcile those two things is, is always been all, it's been an ongoing kind of project for costume yeah. designers. Yeah, that's crazy to think that costume design, it really is, you know, in wardrobe is so iconic in film itself, in TV, a lot of these people take trends and fashion trends mm. straight from like probably a lot of the movies that you've made. You've influenced a lot of like culture in a lot of ways. And it's crazy to think that sometimes the budgets aren't according to what you think the value would be mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And I think you have typically on bigger projects, bigger teams, mm -hmm. which is also really necessary. So a costume designer also has to really fight for those things. It's yeah. not handed to you. Um, you need to prove it, you know, a lot of times, like, I really need this because of this. So again, being well versed in the process is important and having a voice and being able to speak up respectfully yeah. to get what you need. And something that you were mentioning to me before when we were talking, you said when you first started out, you were getting a lot of big movies and you were on that role of doing big feature after big feature, but then you realized that that was kind of maybe stunting you from getting other jobs that you might want, whether it's just a lower budget, but not a less like amazing film. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I think after a point doing Titanic and I did Wild Ball West, a few movies in a row that were, you know, sort of the beginning of bringing back the historical drama to the U.S., where all these historical pieces, period pieces, a lot of them were being done, and, and they were always considered British films, and they still are to some extent. But I know, I know when we did Titanic, it was like, oh, that's never going to make any money. No one wants to see that here. Well, <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> they were wrong. They were wrong about that. But I think as a designer, I got to the point where I would get, sometimes I would hear of a movie that I thought was a really amazing director or a great story, and they'd say, well, it only has this much money, you know, so they're not interested in you. And like, well, why not? Because you're, they look at you as being a big spender. I said, and then, so I had to say, like, okay, what are you going to do here? Because you have to be able to prove to people that you can work on whatever level that you're given. Mm -hmm. And you got to be successful at it. You got to hit your budgets. You got to make it look good. And it was hard work. And it was difficult at that time to convince my agents at the time. Like they're like, why do you want to? 
why do you want to do that? You're going to make half the salary. You're like, yeah, but I think it's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Or I've really ever always wanted to work for that director. I think he does amazing movies. So it was a choice I really actively made. It didn't come to me, and I had to, like, steer, steer it that way. And I'm very glad that I did. I'm sure that there were other bigger projects I could have done or might have missed out on at times, but being able to be that flexible and finally get known for that, like, okay, don't worry about her. She can go to Morocco with Bill Murray and do Rock the Casbah and Barry Levins. I mean, who wouldn't want to do a Barry Levinson film? Yeah. Amazing director, right? So, but you only have X amount of money. I can do it. And you think, okay. So it's been extremely beneficial to me as a, in my personal art. Yeah. Do you have any other insight in terms of challenges that costume designers might face over their career in how to navigate them? Yeah. I think the biggest one is trying to, in the film business, is trying to be a working mother. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It wasn't made easy for me. Um, it's getting better, but we work absolutely brutal hours. Very difficult for women who are the main, usually the main person responsible for bringing up children a lot of hard decisions have to be made and I think that you know it's rare the producer director or even co-worker that takes that into consideration Um, and I think I learned the hard way and I also realized like now looking back that there are probably times where I could have been much more sensitive to the needs of my crew when my during Avatar my first grandchild was born and I was like, okay, well, certainly he can come to the office. So we set up a little daycare for him in our office. And I thought, everyone has their dog here. I think a baby is even, it was so, and for all the women, everybody, all the women in the department and in the building would come down every once in a while just to hold him. It was just like a therapy baby. That's cute. So I learned through that too, like embrace it. Let's try to make this bigger and more acceptable. Because it is really hard. Absolutely. Yeah, and you would think, you know, I remember just myself going to hang with my dad all the time at office, at least on like bring your kid to work day. But even outside of that, I would just hang out and I was never like a nuisance. Obviously, it can become problematic if maybe Mm. there's like something going on on set. But yeah, it should be allowed, especially if you said everybody's dog can be there. (laughs) Why not like a kid who's obviously going to be cute and be a part of the process? And you never know, they might be the next big filmmaker and you're investing in their youth right there. That's right. And I think also for moms trying to make it work, you know, Mm -hmm. to be able to have the the ability to come to your boss and say, you know, my kid has has a school play this afternoon. Is it okay if I leave for two hours? And we've been pretty much, and I'm sure men too, but speaking from my point Mm -hmm. of view, that was never acceptable to ask. So it needs to be more acceptable to ask and for people to be able to cover for each other and embrace this idea that we all a lot of us, however you do it, have an extended family. And that, you know, if you have elderly parents, you might need to go care for them. All these things that make us human and make us able to create art in a human way Mm -hmm. are really, really important. And do you have any advice for someone that was similarly in a position like you were in how to navigate that on a production? Well, you know, it's to me, for me, it's at the very beginning of speaking up about it. Mm I think I would probably have more to say to producers 
to other women, I would say you can. Everyone, it, it became difficult for me when I would teach and I would, <clears throat> there'd be young students and they would say, how can you, how'd you, how'd you do all that? You have a, a marriage, two kids, an incredible career. And I would just be like, I'm not sure. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was lucky. I worked hard. I cared about my children. I made enough money. You know, sometimes women make just enough money to cover childcare. So I think taking all that into consideration and say, you can do this if you want it. Make the choice and do it, and you will find a way to make it work. And that if the rest of us who are now, you know, trying to look back and find ways to nurture students and and women beginning in their careers, try to come up with ways to take care at work, time off when yet needed without penalty, things like that are going to become more and more important and should be. And how do you feel like the current state of the film industry is just in a whole? Do you think it's improving in a lot of those aspects? Or is there, like, what else could the, just as a whole, outside of even just being, you know, in the costume department, do you think that could be, like, better upon? I just think there's so many things that could be better. I mean, I think that, you know, the Me Too movement started a lot of things. I don't think, personally, that a lot of those aspirations have been met. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's still a brutal business, and I think that it's going to take a bigger collective, and it starts uh, obviously starts on a small level, right? Like, I happen to have a producer, John Landau, is very sensitive to people and their family needs. If I said to him, I needed two weeks off to go X, he would, ne- he would never penalize you. You wouldn't lose your job. You know, you need mm-hmm. more people in power to be able to say that. I need to be able, as a head of the department, to do the same for my employees. If my set person comes to me and said, my mom's ailing, I need to go to the hospital and take care of her for two weeks, you go, and when you come back, your job's waiting for you. To just create that ability for us to speak up. Sometimes we work with people, I'm sure you do too, like you look look around and you're like, I don't even know if you're married. I don't even know if you have a partner. I don't know if you're gay or straight or whatever. I don't know anything about you, let alone the struggles that you might be having in your personal life. Mm -hmm. You know, even if someone comes to work and seems depressed or sad, it's like, reach out. You know, just extending that kind of care, I think, for me, is now becoming more and more important. And I really make it a point to try to get to know the people that work for me. And I can't say that's always true in the past. Yeah. Yeah, it's really strong. You know, there's nothing more healing when someone's going through something that you might not be cognizant of to be able to at least be present and listen to them or just even if you don't ever fully know, but getting to have that relationship with a person and even on a film set, you're spending so much time. For example, Avatar, you spent five years, uh, the last five years being around probably a lot of the same people. It's good, know, it's good to know that there's a sense of camaraderie at the end of the day because mm-hmm. it does become a family away from home it for does. a lot of people Mm -hmm. and especially the hours that we work Mm -hmm. you know you work 12 hours minimum a day five days a week sometimes six sometimes seven that's a lot of hours Mm -hmm. and you know it depends on the culture too so I think it's changing the culture when I went to New Zealand um they're they're very kind of buttoned up society a little bit that they don't they don't there's not a lot of like talking about yourself so I would take it upon myself to sit down with my crew every time I came I would go away for six weeks and come back How's it going? How are you? 
you know, what's happening? Tell me about, you know, start, just starting with how many siblings do you have? Do you, ha- you know, tell me about yeah. yourself so that I can know you as well as work with you. I know what you can do in the workplace. I see that every day. But I want to know you a little bit more so that I can understand when you're having a hard day. Right. And that's just good leadership advice, advice, whether you're a costume designer or even in the film industry. It's just good to understand the people that are around you. I think so. And I think yeah. it's very hard to do. Yeah. You know, there's, not a, there's not a premium on it. We're yeah. Not, <laughs> we're not, yeah. Really, we're not really, really made that way. We're not taught that way. We're taught mm-hmm. to be on time. Do your job. You know, don't show any emotion. Yeah. Don't, you know, it's just toe the line, be there till they say you can go home and come back the next day. Yeah, but I think it's changing. I hope slowly. so, because it's, it's a really important sort of human element that yeah. we need to, in, you know, work on a lot. Absolutely. Me included. Yeah. So for those that want to get to where you are today or those that are just starting out, what would be just the little bit of advice that you would give them to becoming a costume designer? Well, I think we've pretty much covered it. Yeah, <laughs> just listen covered, to this episode. <laughs> yeah, let's go back and rewind and listen. But I think it's it's really a bunch of things. Like educate yourself, know that you want it, right? Don't don't fake it because if you fake it, you're not going to make it, as they say. But know what you want. Be clear on your goals, but yet be flexible that if your goals change, it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to say, you know, I thought I was really interested in costumes, but what I really like is makeup. Mm-hmm. Or what I really want to do is just build a set. You know, so That's really good advice. Right? That you can you can change direction and you're working with a bunch of people who do all sorts of jobs, involve yourself in other things to make sure that you're in the right place. And obviously, we've said it before, work hard. You're going to get a lucky break now and again and be prepared to take it. That's really good advice. And I just want to double on the whole, if you set out to do one thing, you're not failing if you pivot to do another, because ultimately it's about your happiness and what you gain out of that fulfillment of doing that task. And don't let like society or whatever it might be, put the pressure that, oh, I went out to be a director, but now I'm just an assistant director. But as long as you're happy and you find it fulfilling and you have that with inside yourself, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. That's right. And we all have a voice and we all have something to give. And it does take a village. It takes many, many people to make a movie or a television show or any any kind of a, a theater piece. It takes a lot of talent. Yeah. And that's important for everyone to recognize. Yeah. And that you don't have to be at the top to be important. Yeah, for as prolific as Spielberg, Cameron, all of these people are, they have a whole team behind them Mm -hmm. that actually makes their vision come to life. That's right. If it was just them, there would be no movie. That's right. That's right. And it's like we're the lucky few. Like I'm the lucky costume designer that gets to sit up here and go, doesn't my movie look amazing? Mm -hmm. I think it does. But look at all these people that did that piece and that piece. And do you know how hard it was to do that piece? Well, she solved it. He solved it. He taught me something new. It's a collective. Absolutely. And if you can give us any insight into the upcoming Avatar, I'm assuming Ooh. probably not, but just a little tidbit. I'll give you a little tidbit. We're allowed to say a few things, though I might be killed after this, but no. <laughs> it's, it's, if you, I mean, obviously two was a huge, a huge explosion from one, right? It's just bigger, better, more immersive, more amazing. I think that Jim says like he doesn't think that the technology will go much further. So that makes me curious because maybe he knows something. I don't know anything about the technology. I just follow my, follow his lead. But it's amazing that you, but I think you can use it. You continue to use it in a different way. 
So there's no doubt that three will be amazing. It's bigger. It's more involved. You learn more about the characters. They go through different journeys, of course. You're familiar with some of them. And we are going to be, it's very exciting for me that we are introducing two new tribes, two new clans of people who are wildly different and one of them not so nice. So it's interesting to have a kind of evil force. Um, And there's more of the humans. It's just more, more, more. But the two new clans are the most exciting for me as a costume Yeah, that is some insider knowledge right Mm -hmm. there. I'm very excited about that. I love the way of water. I thought from the cinematography to the art direction, obviously being in the world of Pandora is very special. And it was an amazing experience to see it in the 3D high frame rate, which uh, I really like that. I know some people have some mixed stuff about high frame rate, but I think it's so interesting. Someone like James Cameron pushing technology to its like 10th degree and seeing Mm. what we can do outside of just traditional filmmaking Mm -hmm. practices of shooting at 24, shooting on film, whatever it might be. He's using digital to the most that it can possibly give us. Mm -hmm. And I love his explorative explorative nature. And it was awesome to see what you contributed to it as well because the the wardrobe in itself was so beautiful. Oh, thank you. So awesome job. I'm glad you appreciated it. And did you have, to close this out, a favorite part of Avatar, The Way of Water? Was there something that you were particularly proud of? In terms of the costumes? Could be anything. Could be the costumes Mm. or just the way that the movie came together as a team for that specific scene. I think the movie in general as a whole came together way better than I thought it would in terms of the look, right? Mm -hmm. And like we said before, like people working so hard in different, you know, and then you go like months would go by on a project like this and like, I haven't seen the production designer. I don't know what they're doing. That somehow... We managed through all the time and all the, tr- the, the struggles of making a film and getting it made and the new technology and all that to really hang together as a, a collective that made a movie that's cohesive. Um, obviously speaks to the incredible genius of Jim and mm-hmm. what he gives us as department heads and, and luckily audiences too. Um, I think I'm most proud of, in my world, I'm most proud of the relationships that I made with people who made the things. Mm-hmm. That, that the blending of this 3D technology and even the ability that I had to 3D print something as opposed to old world craft, um, just seeing that come together in the most seamless, perfect way was and to develop the language of what we were doing because we you know you start off you're like i'm not sure how this is going to work out and you move along and to look back and say yeah we did that pretty well and i think we did it better in three so that's awesome Mm -hmm. well like i said everything that you guys did was awesome we really appreciate your time here on finding the frame do you have any other films besides avatar that are coming out in the foreseeable future is it just avatar right now (sighs) it's avatar all day, every day. Uh, not at the moment, but yeah. I'm, ho- I'm hoping to. I'm hoping awesome. to have something to share. But yeah, we're, we're deep into, you know, we're going to be hitting film three really hard. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to having you back for thank the third you. film and talking to. about all of the technical stuff that goes on with that, plus all of the anecdotes. Thank you so much for your time. This was another episode of Finding the Frame, and I believe we might have some Q&A questions. Ooh. Dave, I don't know if there's anyone sitting around wanting to ask anything. See. Sorry, I had my microphone muted. 
Um, let's see. We're doing a little Q&A, waiting for some questions to pop in. We still got people hanging around. Um, well, while that comes While we're in, waiting. Yeah. Go ahead. I will... My favorite films of yours. Okay. Now that we're looking at it. I loved, obviously, the first Avatar, Transformers, which was great that you got to work with Michael Bay. That's yeah, really awesome. Yeah, I worked awesome. with him a bunch. He's so much fun. That's a, the those island, are all wild rides. The Island, specifically, as a kid, I watched that movie probably like 30 times. The Island is an underrated movie. It is so and under... I think it's probably his best film. It's one of his very best films. Absolutely. Conceptually, it holds up. It's it interesting. It really set the template for a lot of those kinds of movies, yeah. and he did an amazing job. I wish that era of movie like was still being made. Absolutely. Obviously, it's still a bigger budget film, but around that time, like early 2000s, was an impeccable period. Even throughout the 90s, I feel like after 2010, it's just gotten a lot harder for films, especially like feature films. Mm -hmm. But The Island, there was just so many good movies around that period. But I remember as a kid being like, "Oh my God." Oh, not going to give anything away. Actually, a spoiler alert. They were clones. But I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. My mind was blown. And I just loved the way that it looked, the aesthetic, and the whole wardrobe. They're like jumpsuit outfits when yeah. they're inside the facility. It's, that would have been a lot of fun. It was fun. It was, you know, it's always hard to kind of nail down a costume yeah. that multiple people are going to wear in different ways. And how complicated it could be, how simple it could be, how does it flatter, you know, how do you flatter the most people? Um, I think it had an incredible cast. Yeah. They were really good. And Nigel Phelps, the production designer, and I had worked together before. And we really, you know, united, had a very united, very hands-on working experience with each other. So I think it shows in that's, the film. That's really awesome. Obviously, The Patriots, like, just another good one. I enjoyed that film when I was a kid. Uh, Titanic was great. I love Heat, though. Heat had to have oh. probably been a very special and like intense movie to make. Heat was incredibly intense to make. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was a real... Oh my God, what a pleasure of, of working with hugely talented, Michael Mann, hugely talented, very focused. Have you worked with him on anything else? Um, we tried a couple times, but we, we haven't been able to reunite, yeah. but he's genuinely a, a, a filmmaker. And I mean, Bob De Niro, Al Pacino, I mean, you can't, come on. Yeah. Are there any directors <laughs> that you would really love to collaborate with that you haven't yet? Oof. Wow. There's so many out there. There's so many new ones. I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even get started. I really wish I could go back in time and work with Paul Newman, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Mm -hmm. okay, be... Have you ever seen Defending Your Life? I have not. Oh, my God. Please. You I'll must. You have to watch it. Directed by Albert Brooks. He's the star of it. It's another one of those weird, you know, middle, I think, 90s, early 90s. But um, whole, it just went on Criterion Channel. Oh, I love the Criterion Channel. It's a classic. It holds up like it's futuristic, sort of afterlife, sort of. Mm -hmm. And it's very... I love very... the color of money. Wait, so oh, you, do you I did do that. Kun, well, just like speaking of Paul Newman. Oh, But did Paul you do... Newman. You said you did Kun Dune? No, no. Oh, Melissa okay. wrote it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Copy that. I wish I'd we done that. We got some questions coming in. Ooh. Sweet. All right. So we have, the first question comes from someone who's in the room with you. It's Kurt. Your camera operator. <laughs> Kurt wants to hear a little <laughs> bit more about your work on Titanic and specifically developing the looks for Jack and Rose. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, that was easier in a way than you would think because the rule book for a period film is very distinct, right? If you're, if you're going for historical accuracy, which a lot of people don't in a period film, but in this one particularly... It was well photographed in the time period. 
people had, you know, absolutely knew what everything was supposed to, what you would had to aspire to. So that made it kind of easy. Once you did all that research, you were the expert. You know, it's like, you can't wear that. You could wear that, you know. And I studied a lot of etiquette to dictate all those costume changes and who would wear what. And so the upper class had tremendous amount of research that you could do. Fashion magazine, I mean, all over the place. The, the great thing was that then it was completely separated from Jack, from Leo DiCaprio's character. And he was to represent the exact opposite, right? So, I mean... That's pretty, it's not like you're trying to have two people in this love story that are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It's that completely different worlds coming together. And that was really fun too. Sidebar, just getting Leo in a, in a tuxedo was really fun. It really impressed a lot of people on the set that day. Why so? Oh, because it was like, oh my God, look how he looks. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> He's so handsome. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Were there any like specific challenges during the making of Titanic that you recall that were like, particularly hard? I know you guys were shooting in like water and stuff, so wardrobe, any consideration with that? Oh my God, so much. The water, water and more water and, and people being freezing and it was intensive in that way. Like you think... Everything was so practical. Again, the Jim Cameron proof of concept. Um, the water was not heated, and it was very cold. And there were a lot of people in it. So it was just a, logistically a huge challenge. Yeah, that's really nice. Are there any other questions, Dave? We do. We've got one more question coming in. Maybe this will be our last question. Um, we got a technical question kind of talking about you know, digital camera sensors in relationship to picking clothing and things like that and materials to use as you're making costumes. You know, we think about certain patterns that create moray and things like that. Is that something that's become more of an issue, something that you're having to pay more attention to nowadays now that we're no longer shooting as much on film and now it's digital, things are more sharp and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think you do have to be aware of that sharpness. And I always talk to my cinematographer about what their plan is, because sometimes they're gonna do stuff that you're not really aware of, right? And you need to be. Um, digital's easier in a way because it's, you know, I always gonna say, just look with your eyes. Look with your eyes in the lighting, check it out, and then you'll be pretty spot on. The weird technical stuff that happens is smoothing out a little bit, but the hyper-focus, you know, so you better be careful of, it's very precise. So you need to be very precise with your costume work. Mm-hmm. It, used to be, it was more, it was harder when we shot on film because you didn't really know what was being captured. What about like colors of clothes? I know sometimes I would watch like supplementaries, for example, like on The Hobbit, like certain reds they couldn't use because it wouldn't be rendered accordingly. Mm-hmm. Is that stuff that you would go back and forth with on, on a lot of productions? Yeah, I think you had, those are again things like you work together with the cinematographer and sometimes the production designer to understand what what's not going to work with yeah. what the process, because their process comes first. The cinematographer is not going to change what he's doing because you have a costume. <laughs> so it's, you better be able to figure out how to make it work beforehand. You know, there's always technical things that happen. A color might shift a little bit scene to scene, but we're used to looking at that with our eyes anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you wear a pair of jeans, sometimes they look really blue. Sometimes they look black, depending on what lighting you're in. So your eye will normally tell you what you're going to get. That's a good note. Any other questions, Dave? Okay. 
We actually have one last question. Mm-hmm. Come from a guy named Shane. Shane Hurlbut asked the question. I was just asking for a little clarification. He says, what is what has your conversation with the cinematographer on teching down whites? What colors do you use to dye the whites? I don't tech down whites anymore. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the film, the digital film can handle pretty much anything. And again, you might find yourself in a situation where there's going to be incredibly bright, you know, might. So again, know what situation you're going to get into with the cinematographer. But I think a good cinematographer can handle whites now. And you wouldn't normally choose a horrible blue white anyway, because it's just not flattering to anybody. Mm -hmm. And you would have to be careful of um, a person with dark skin with too white, the, the balance, which you're always, you're judging that with any color anyway. You know, the balance of color in a frame on a person. So no, I think um, just, you don't, don't have to worry about it too much, but check it out before you get yourself into trouble. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Well, I think that was everything, Deborah. We really appreciate you coming on for the first 2023, Finding the Frame. It was a really awesome one. It was super insightful for me. I know it's going to be extremely insightful for our audience. We continue to look forward to having costume designers like yourself on here to hopefully shine a spotlight more on the incredible stuff that you guys all do. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. And the questions were really good. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, stay tuned for the next one. There are more to come. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all-access members, and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.